0: Hello and welcome to Delete, Delete, Engage, the podcast supercharging engagement at work with tips and insights from some of the world's finest communicators. Lynette Huntley is Director for Peers for the Planet, the House of Lords Climate and Biodiversity Action Group. I actually first met Lynette when we worked together on an internal comms change programme for Channel 4, where she was the Chief of Staff and also the TV broadcaster's founding executive sponsor for the environment. Lynette and I talked about the challenges of building a movement in support of positive change building engagement around sustainability and also the similarities between communicating and engaging in the corporate and political world. Due to a recording glitch about two-thirds into our conversation Lynette had to come back into the studio to record the last section again so I'm hugely grateful to her for being both a brilliant and an understanding guest. Enjoy the podcast. Hi, Lynette. Welcome to Delete, Delete, Engage.
1: Thank you. Nice to be here. So, Lynette, when we first met,
0: you were Chief of Staff at Channel 4 Television, and you were also Channel 4's founding executive sponsor for the environment. So you're now a director at Peers for the Planet, the House of Lords Climate and Biodiversity Action Group. Is it fair to say that environmental campaigning is very much in your blood?
1: I think it's something that has grown in my blood, I'd say, over the last few years. I suppose it's been a bit of a journey, actually. Uh, I think it started really meaningfully at Channel 4. And it started because partly I married a guy who actually uh, has committed his kind of life to environmental issues. So there was a background influence there for quite a long time. But one of the things that Channel 4 um, really taught me was to think differently about change and about how you bring about change, what the barriers to change are. And I began to think about this very much in terms of the environment and about climate change. It was the time of the school strikes. And uh, it was becoming something which I felt like I'd done a bit about in my personal life, but I could probably do a lot more and commit a, a lot more to if I spent my working life focused on it as well. And I was seeing things like, you know, David Attenborough, an institute, British institution, line up alongside Greta Thunberg, you know, and a kind of icon of radicalism. Yeah. And I became really interested in this idea of how you bring together very different ideas of what change is about. Um, Channel 4 was somewhere that I think people go to work because they are attracted to this broadcaster, which is the kind of cocky underdog. Um, it was created actually with, through really quite a visionary act of parliament. I mean, probably one of the most visionary acts of parliament that there have been apart from the Climate Change Act to create change in society, to to create new social norms. And I could see that what Channel 4 had done really effectively could be translated into the climate world as well. So if you take things like the Paralympics, where Channel 4 showed what disabled people could be, presented them as abled people. If you see things like, you know, the first lesbian kiss on Brookside, what Channel 4's kind of done through its history is be the first to do something and to kind of paint a picture of a new future and an alternative way of of thinking. And I think that sort of came together with the school strikes in my head to think, there's something here with the experience I have to date, having worked across different sectors, in different comms roles. Um, I think I can contribute something here, but I wasn't really sure what it was. So you, you moved from uh, Channel
0: 4, where you were Chief of Staff, to Peers for the Planet. Could you just tell me a little bit about Peers for the Planet? What What's the mission and what do, what role do you play there?
1: So the thinking behind the group was that uh, we have these amazing environment experts in the House of Lords. But given the scale of change we need to see in terms of government policies and regulations, things that will enable us to tackle climate change, there needed to be a broader base of parliamentarians who understood the issues and not just understood them, but were acting on them. Um, and it's worth, it's worth saying a little bit about the House of Lords, actually, mm-hmm. for context, because it's quite a unique place. Uh, it's actually very different from the House of Commons. Uh, It's got some enormous strengths uh, in terms of uh, lords are, you know, they have a longevity. They don't, they're not subject to general elections. There's there's good things and bad things about that, but they have a longevity. They tend to be at a later stage in their life. They have a kind of thoughtfulness and a focus of attention, which is often very difficult in the House of Commons. Um, They There's no government majority in the lords. So you can win in the lords. Whether it's through negotiation with the government, through government concessions, or ultimately by voting. Um, the balance in the Lords is really very much held by independent peers, by crossbenchers. Uh, and that changes the flavour of the politics there. It's, it's, it tends to be somewhere where, you know, they're, they're, they're not as tightly whipped as in the Commons mm. by political parties. So all of these factors come together and you've got this incredibly diverse group of experts who um, by and large have you know, a really strong tradition of working collaboratively and of working for societal good. The other thing that's really important about the Lords is that um, there's real scrutiny that goes on there. But lots of people don't know, but there are huge chunks of legislation in the House of Commons that are just never even considered whereas the Lords undertakes line-by-line scrutiny. So the really hard work of holding the government's feet to the fire often happens in the Lords in that very detailed way. Um, And all of those factors are huge strengths. And you have this group of people who are eminent in defence issues or health issues or international development, and they bring all of these different lenses to conversations about, you know, economic and societal good. And What I I guess what I sort of was really attracted by was the idea that you could harness all of these different lenses to something like an issue of the complexity and scale of climate change and and biodiversity loss. It's such an overwhelming issue that often politicians sort of, they try and tame it by dumbing it down into, Mm. you know, bite-sized chunks, whether it's plastic straws or, you know, stuff that, you know, great guys but really it's not going to change the world and I became interested in the idea of how can you harness all of those different lenses to apply them to what is actually a really deep systemic problem Um, so yeah I mean that that was the sort of central proposition when we started
0: Mm. and which lords have really impressed you in terms of their knowledge of the real environmental challenges that we face and their passion for getting things done
1: What's been um, a really important aspect of um, the way we've set up the group? There's about 150 peers in the group now, and it is it's truly cross-party. Is the mixture between expert peers, I'll call them expert peers on environmental issues, and non-experts. I mean, they're probably experts in something else. And what what has been really exciting and really impressive is. The premise of a peer, what is actually a peer to peer network. And it's the sort of strength in numbers that I, that I talked about, the sort of broad based coalition. The peers that have been really impressive are those who perhaps didn't have expertise previously in environmental issues, but who, with support and with the in- infrastructure that we've provided as a group, have been able to take on some really big issues. Um, I mean, our co chairs are actually great examples of that mix. Uh, one of our co-chairs is Baroness Helene Heyman, and she's a former Lord Speaker of the House of Lords, so she really understands the House of Lords. She has her fingers around you know, the nuances of it, the, the obscure procedures, the relationships. Um, our other co-chair is, is Bryony Worthington, who's the lead author of the Climate Change Act. She's a deep expert, actually, in climate and environment issues. And that's a fantastic complement, uh, a complementary duo. And we've seen it again and again, actually, in the way that peers work together. We've been working across a whole range of bills, many of them, in no way obviously, environmental. Uh, one example is we worked on a healthcare bill and we mixed healthcare experts in the Lords, former CEO of the NHS, current chair of NHS England, with non experts and with environment experts. When you put those together, suddenly some magic happens because they're actually very collaborative. They're willing to work together. And if you make that cross party as well, you've got a really effective formula for persuading their own peers as well as the government about whatever the changes that's needed.
0: Mm. And you mentioned one of the co-chairs, uh, Baroness Heyman, and I noted that um, she's quoted on the website as saying, The UK's contribution in responding to the climate crisis will be measured not just in the quantity of emissions we reduce, but in the quality of the vision, innovation and leadership we provide. So what does she mean by that?
1: I think what she's talking about is what we do domestically matters globally. One of the pushbacks we often hear from politicians is that, you know, the UK is responsible for 1% of global emissions. You know, we're tiny, we can't really make a difference. I mean, that completely ignores the real leverage that we have. I mean, actually, if you look at our historic emissions, we're in the top 10 globally. If you look at the emissions for which, for example, the city of London is responsible, we're in the top 10 globally. Uh, So first of all, we have a responsibility. But also, you know, we have a global stage, we're currently the leaders, um, we're the president of the the UN climate process, the COP summits. And we also have an opportunity, and this is really what the group is about, to put in place laws and policies which set blueprints and set high standards for others to follow. That's a really, really central part of what we're trying to do. So we're trying in the House of Lords to put a climate and nature lens over every bill that goes through Parliament. We're looking at it, we're turning it around and we're saying, how could we make this better? How could this bill help us progress towards decarbonising and tackling climate change and restoring nature faster than we are at the moment? Or what has it got in it that's going to prevent us from doing that? And when you start to put that lens over everything, what you're actually doing is you're normalizing the idea of kind of climate and everything. The first bill we worked on wasn't an environment bill, it was a pensions bill. We then worked on a financial markets bill. We then worked on skills, on research and development, on health and care and the NHS. Uh, We're now working on a procurement bill because all of those things are levers to going faster or slower in terms of the change we need to make to to our economic system, to our social system, to the way we do business, to jobs, to the way we're educated. And that's really exciting to me, the idea that you you normalise, you mainstream these sorts of ideas.
0: So you mentioned the word change successful communications and engagement is often focused towards influencing change i mean actually you and i first worked together at channel four on a, on a change related program now you're effectively looking to rally a pretty diverse group of very prominent people behind environmental change so i just wondered how, how have you gone about getting the lords on board with your mission you know what sort of approach have you taken
1: so I guess at a very basic level, we've provided the sort of infrastructure and the coordination that doesn't otherwise exist. Um, I mean, in many ways, politicians are, are, have lots of similarities to corporate leaders and business leaders. You know, they're really time poor. They're probably expert in something, but not everything. Um, so in many ways, the, the way you can help them most is, is very practical sense. You know, good, trusted, evidence-based, succinct briefing. To support them and give them the confidence that they kind of know what's what and that they can speak out and, and take some action. I think the other thing that has been really important is this point about peer to peer learning. Um, I think for people to take on issues as big as, as climate and nature, they need to see its relevance to, to themselves. And we've really been using the levers that are quite unique to parliamentarians, whether that's kind of question time or debates to, if you like, encourage peers to insert and to join the dots between uh, action that we've got to take on climate and action that we need to take to make society better or, you know, to improve our health care or to improve our education system so that it's fit for the future. And joining those dots in very practical ways and having peers say these things and other peers see it is really part of the momentum building. We've we've seen a phenomenal change actually in the nature of the debate in the House of Lords. So in, in the first year that we were um, operating, it's very hard to measure change, it's really messy. But we look at a variety of things and we look at how frequently climate change Um, rather technical phrases like net zero or biodiversity loss are being used in the house. And in the first year, net zero and biodiversity trebled and doubled respectively. By the second year, that had gone up 10 times uh, and three times respectively. So what what we're really doing is encouraging the debate to happen. And the more it happens, it's a sort of it's a positive feedback loop. People see that these are issues that they can raise, that are raisable, that are relevant to all sorts of different policy areas. And it's it's kind of it kind of snowballs, which is really, really exciting. So I think just providing the basic inputs, the basic briefing, the sort of infrastructure that wasn't there before the group was formed has been you you know one of our directors is is Martha Lane Fox who's got Mm. this incredible um, she's got an incredible skill of encouragement actually and she said to me early on she said listen everything you do is additive everything you do is additive because we kind of if I'm honest we didn't really know where to start Mm. Um, and we started with some very basic kind of knowledge building and and she was right and I think you know three years in almost if we packed up tomorrow what we will have built is a really engaged and interested sort of brains trust, Um, a level of knowledge that wasn't there before. People don't realise MPs get quite a lot of support. They have officers and they have researchers and they have constituency stuff. Peers don't have anything. So before we created this group, there was a real vacuum of that kind of basic support.
0: Mm. And we're going through a period of political upheaval at the moment. And I guess... The climate, the focus on the climate and what needs to be done has maybe taken a back step because of other political priorities. To what extent can the Lords and what you're doing influence MPs in the Commons to, 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 to kind of lift that, that climate focus back up the agenda again?
1: It's such, a, it's such an important point. There's a, there's a really important messaging point here, I think, for, for communications professionals who, who are wanting to work in this area. I mean, you're right. There's been massive political distraction. I mean, the cost of living crisis, the energy crisis, you know, we've certainly felt huge setbacks in the last few months. But the messaging that actually the the good news um, and actually the message that business itself is giving government is that tackling the big issues, the cost of living crisis, the energy crisis, our sense of insecurity. It's the same thing, you need to do the same things to tackle climate change and biodiversity loss. They're the same, they have the same root causes, the Mm -hmm. same problem is fossil fuels, Mm -hmm. um, expensive volatile fossil fuel markets, and they share the same solutions as well. So that's the kind of, that's the message really that um, certainly a lot of peers are picking up but they're not the only ones. I mean, really, this is something that is happening um, and that business groups are talking about. They're writing the, to the prime minister about it. I mean, last month, businesses worth billions of pounds were writing to the prime minister saying the cost of living crisis, tackling the cost of living crisis and tackling the climate crisis are one and the same things. And we want you to prioritise polities that can do both because it's possible.
0: And I guess there are... Um Talking of big businesses, and it was announced today, I think that BP's profits uh, have, have significantly, I think they've doubled since last year. I mean, what it seems that every business has a net zero goal by 2050 at the latest, I guess. What, what role do businesses that are maybe seen as being the biggest contributors to the problem have to pay? Not just in terms of windfall tax, but also in terms of the way that they do business.
1: Well, I mean, they've got a huge responsibility is, I guess, the short answer. Um, I think one one thing we have to acknowledge is that those businesses need to go through a transition. Um, They are not going to change overnight. Now, I don't want to go soft on them, (laughs) but I think sometimes, you know, we can be unrealistic about how fast those businesses are going to change. I think one thing that is encouraging is that there were there were a lot of businesses who you, you kind of might not expect, you might have not have expected to, um, you know, step up. Did did actually step up, particularly in the run up to the UN climate conference last year in Glasgow. A lot of businesses, I think, the penny dropped that climate risks, you know, are, are really top of their concerns. If you look, if you look now at the World Economic Forum's Global Risk Register, the top three risks. Identified by, you know, global risk experts and business leaders, are first of all failure to act on climate change, secondly extreme weather, and thirdly biodiversity loss. Now, isn't that extraordinary? That's really extraordinary. So um, most businesses are kind of waking up to this, and I think those businesses who are most responsible. Are also waking up to it and they're beginning to realise that at some point they are going to have to make a contribution in some way, whether that's through kind of polluter pays policies um, or by simply changing and you know, investing in different things. So, I mean, look, this is a really, this is a kind of political minefield that I'm carefully stepping through because I'm going to keep my imp- sort of, you know, you know it could become quite a kind of party political. Point of view as well, but I think the fundamental principle that the polluter pays is sound. Uh, It is very mainstream and it has support across all parties. So I think it's a principle that needs to be pretty prominent in the way we, um, in the way those businesses are thinking and the way they plan.
0: Yeah, thank you.
1: Um,
0: Taking a more positive view, which UK businesses are really leading the way with the climate agenda uh, and what relationship does peers for the planet have with those businesses
1: well i think there's some there's some fantastic business groups out there actually and and there's and, and actually even more important fantastic business coalitions so you know, I think the good news, if you're a business thinking, what do I do about all of this, is you don't need to reinvent the wheel. You you can go and learn from other people and what what the most progressive businesses are doing. And groups like Aldersgate Group, um, this is a business group for thinking about the kind of new ways to run our economy. Uh, the Broadway Group. Um, listen to the CBI. You know, uh, even the most traditional business groups are doing really good things. Have got good materials on on this. But you know, I, I mean, who are really notable? I mean, I the first I mentioned the first bill that we worked on was a pension schemes bill, and we peers managed to secure the first ever piece of legislation in the world that aligns. The way pension schemes have to operate with our climate goals, and actually, there were businesses like Aviva who committed very early to decarbonising the way in which they work and the way in which they invest, um, have been really instrumental. Those businesses that that go first, I think, should be you know rightly celebrated, and loads have followed. Absolutely, loads have followed. So there's there's lots of. Um, case studies out there to find. I mean, what we've been trying to do in the group is actually bring those business voices into the house because there's a very weird thing going on at the moment in politics. There seems to be a sort of weird disjoint between what business is saying and what government thinks. Government's always behind business. They're always behind the curve of what business wants, but it feels particularly penis at the moment because business is actually saying, look, we want to invest in new low-carbon clean markets. We want to do this. We can see the economic benefits. We can see that the world's most competitive uh, countries US China India they're investing huge they're investing trillions in this stuff and we want to do it but we need you government to put in place the policies and the legal frameworks that will facilitate it so they're asking for regulation i mean i you know i grew up in my 20s i was a lobbyist Um, you know, regulation was a dirty word, Uh, you know, the default in politicians' mind is deregulate, deregulate. That's not what business want anymore. They want stability, they want clarity, uh, and they want long-term stable frameworks. It's why the UK has actually been so successful in renewables, because of policy intervention, which gave business the certainty to invest long-term. And when you invest long term like that, prices fall and markets flourish. And that's the job of government to do that. I can't remember how we got around to that. No, no, no. It's it's a great (laughs) answer. the role of business is absolutely crucial in all of this.
0: Um, Just on the pensions point, there's a lot of talk, isn't there, about sustainable investing and green investing. Is that something that we can expect to see a lot more of then, would you say?
1: I'm not a finance expert. I've got to say, you know, it's... it's, um, you know it's an area that is hugely complex but we do need to as well as pulling out of dirty investment we absolutely need to do all we can to put the money into clean investment and it is actually really exciting to see just how far and fast that is that is going so yeah what that's doing is it's creating these kind of tipping points really where uh, you know, the more you put into the good stuff and the more that grows, the more the economics are really behind action on climate change. I mean, this is the really exciting news, yeah. the economics are behind it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's a bit good like... Good
0: business makes good business sense.
1: Absolutely. And in in a funny way, you know, it's much easier to make the case today than it was five years ago about Mm. this, because there are so many examples of how, you know, when you've got the right policy conditions, that investment is easier and those tipping points happen. I mean, if you take electric vehicles, for example, in the UK, we now have a date beyond which it's going to be illegal to sell, Mm. you know, cars with an internal combustion engine. Mm. That's massively helped business, Mm. you know, invest in a way that is going to speed us towards a decarbonised transport system. So what, what businesses really need is they need those kind of, those anchor points to coalesce behind. And the Climate Change Act in the UK in 2008 did that. It was the first time there was in statute a target and uh, people need, people really need targets. How you get there can be really, really messy. Uh, and, um, you know, that's kind of another whole conversation about how you deliver on it. It's yeah. really, really hard. But you've got to start with a really clear target. And actually what's been really unhelpful in the last few months is there's been a lot of, you know, there has been a lot of flip-flopping and uncertainty about what government policy is on climate and nature and what it will be with every new prime minister and chancellor. And that's really bad for business. It's really bad for inward investment. It's really bad um, for kind of domestic stability. I mean, I think one of the things that that needs to be done better is what the steps are between now and then, because um, everyone delays, (laughs) everyone puts it off. And actually what we know And if you kind of read the advice from the experts from the climate change committee, the UK's climate change committee, who are the statutory advisers to government and parliament on uh, climate, you will see that actually what we need to do is front load the investment now in the 2020s, because, uh, you know, some of those investments will take a while to come through. It takes a long time to change our infrastructure.
0: Yeah, thank you. So Lynette, I've worked at two businesses, O2 and Virgin Media, where sustainability has sat within the remit of the corporate comms team because they straddle all business departments. Now, what advice would you give communications teams looking to drive internal and external engagement around sustainability and climate change?
1: So I think, I guess the one overriding message is that you know, communications is the medium through which change happens. So it, it's such an important role. Uh, I think sometimes it does feel a little bit like sustainability in the way businesses are structured. It, it can be a bit of a, an add on. But I think if you plant it in a team like that, that that truly is kind of cross disciplines, it's it's really, really um, effective. I guess what I would, this, the stuff that I've learned is um, if you're going to use comms to drive change. It can feel kind of a lonely job and you need to make your allies internally first of all. So one of the things I did at Channel 4, um, one of the things I'm really most proud of was founding 4Earth, which was the employee group focused on climate issues. And um, it took me a little while to do. I kind of sat on it for a couple of years. I did some background thinking. I, I, I managed to beg some money off the finance director to do a benchmarking study. I sort of built my case, if you like. I showed where we really were, which wasn't as good as we perhaps thought we were. And, but I kind of felt a little bit on my own. So I eventually put out a call to see if there were other employees who wanted to join me. And I just got this absolutely tremendous response. I had people from the finance department, from marketing, from Four creative, from commissioning, you know, from all sorts of teams coming together who really cared about this issue. And suddenly I wasn't on my own anymore. So find your intrapreneurs because they're a really powerful voice. And if you create a good employee group, it's something that, you know, your corporate leaders do have to listen to.
0: And Channel Four has got some some really powerful employee resource groups, hasn't it? It's it does. Kind of
1: it's, it, 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 it does. You know they've, the groups that are focused on diversity issues, um, so focused on whether it's BAME issues or LGBT plus, and you know those have been really really effective in generating conversations in mainstreaming issues, which people often feel nervous about talking about. Climate is a big issue. People feel overwhelmed by it. So uh, those sorts of groups, I think, can really help people think about it, not just corporately, but in their personal lives as well.
0: Mm. Mm -hmm. And then externally, um, how did you go about building engagement externally?
1: So I think that the, the really, again, the really good news is you don't have to do this alone. There's loads of people doing really interesting stuff in this area. And depending what sector you work in or what kind of area of comms you work in, there will be someone out there doing it, you don't need to reinvent the wheel yourself. I mean, if you're working with boards, there's a brilliant organization called Chapter Zero, which is uh, there to support boards thinking about climate and helping non-exec directors, you know, be introduced to these issues. If you're working um, in corporate comms, there are great groups like the Aldersgate Group, uh, Broadway Initiative. You know the CBI. Even those sort of traditional bodies are doing a huge amount in this space. So there's a lot of materials out there, and you'll find you'll find friends. And we really need those broad coalitions. We need diverse groups coming together and giving politicians a mandate to act on it. So you can be bigger than the sum of your parts. Um, you might feel like you're just one part, but you can you can amplify that in so many different ways.
0: Wonderful, thank you. And then final question, what can we all do at an individual level to move the sustainability agenda forward?
1: It, it's really hard because I think people really struggle to know what to do and they're sort of inundated about messages about... Uh, You know, plastic straws, I'm afraid it's a real hobby horse of mine because, you know, it's really not going to move the dial. I think understanding where your impact is the greatest is the first thing and actually we are very privileged people sitting here and I expect you have a pension I have a pension where your pension is is a big big lever in the kind of fight to tackle climate change and um, there are brilliant initiatives one there's one called make my money matter look it up that is helping uh, individuals and actually businesses with their employees helping them by explaining how the sort of pension systems work and where your money really is. It's quite horrifying when you realise the money that you have in your pension is invested in really bad stuff. But it's got really, you know, good advice and toolkits on, on how to um, how to change that. So think about your money. That's a really big lever for us all as individuals. Uh, think about the way you travel. Uh, think about the way you heat your home. Think about the food you eat. Look, we're not all going to be perfect, but Realising that um those are the big things that that matter, I think is a, a really, a really good start. And then I think as individuals and as as voters, you need to give politicians their mandate. Uh, I came across a really, really interesting organisation the other day called The Commitment, who are encouraging people to make a video where they commit to vote for politicians who are prioritizing climate. And They're then taking those videos, they're aggregating them and they're they're showing them to constituency MPs. And it's really powerful because politicians act when they think they have a mandate. They only act if they're under pressure and they know something is going to lose them votes if they don't do it. So um, we're all part of that. And I I found that a really inspiring project. Um, So, yeah, put your vote where it matters. And I say that in a non-party political way. (laughs) Yes, of
0: course. And just going back a little bit, we were chatting earlier um, about, um, you know, the the cost of living crisis and just thinking personally, you know, uh, we, you know, as you say, we're we're in quite a privileged demographic. We don't have to worry too much about whether we choose to, to heat the house or what we're eating, but... You know, in our family, we have been making more conscious decisions around how many times we we have a bath or a shower in a day or whether we use the oven or the hob or the microwave. Um, and do you think that actually, you know, it, there, there there are some um, although it is a really tough situation that the country is in at the moment with the cost of living crisis, there might be some energy and sustainability benefits that come out of that?
1: Undoubtedly. You know, I was actually just looking at a graph this morning published by the International Energy um, Agency. Uh, They are the kind of global sort of analysts for the energy market. And um, they they are finding that this whole crisis is actually accelerating investment in renewables rather than uh, decelerating it. And that is a really, uh, you know, I hate to say it because I'm really mindful of the, the kind of suffering that this crisis is inflicting on people. I think long term, it will make us, I hope, go further and faster. And that is certainly what um, the trends are already showing.
0: Well, thank you, Lynette. Look, absolutely fascinating conversation, really enjoyed it. Um, Just before we finish up, one thing that I ask my podcast guests to do is to answer six quickfire comms related questions in around 90 seconds. Um, Are you up for that? Go for it. Okay, great stuff. (laughs) Lynette, can you sum up your communication style in three words?
1: Uh, Caveat with this is, I'm sure, aspirational sometimes, but I'd say um, optimistic, evidence based uh, and collaborative.
0: Of all the comms you receive or the emails you get, roughly what percentage do you delete without reading?
1: About 20% I think.
0: What was the last message that landed in your inbox that really grabbed your attention?
1: Um I was uh I was reading a piece actually about a company which is giving um was well an initiative actually to encourage businesses to give their people a couple of days extra leave in order to travel by train instead of plane and it really uh, it really kind of grabbed me because I just spent the day before trying to work out how I could take the kids to Berlin at Christmas by train and I'd sort of given up cuz I thought it was a whole day's travel you know is it worth it for a 2 or 3 day break um and so there, there was a sort of solution. And it was, I, what I loved about it is that it's an idea that normalises a different way of travelling. Just as, you know, giving paternity leave hasn't normalised the chaps having time off, mm. these sorts of things, re- these, these kind of initiatives can be really, really powerful and really start to make you think about, you know, those day-to-day things where you take decisions that will impact your, your, your kind of carbon footprint.
0: I love that. Um but although I'm traveling to Australia at Christmas to see my sister, so I don't think there's going to be a an alternative travel option for me there, I don't think.
1: No, you'd have to take you'd have to take a sabbatical I think. <laughs> that one. So look, you, you know there there are some we're not all going to be stopping flying overnight and I think um it goes back to perhaps what I've said earlier that you know long term there need to be principles about the polluter pays So for those of us who are lucky enough to do those trips, then you know we ought to be paying for it. And that money ought to be being channeled into ways to to kind of tackle climate change so you know I mean there's a whole nother conversation about the about airlines and the aviation industry it's a really really interesting area but I think that that principle probably long term is, is what we've got to adhere to
0: in your opinion what's the one thing a business can do to boost engagement
1: I think you have to tell the truth I think as a comms person you know it, 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 there's a great there's some grayness there actually in what comms professionals do I've I've, I've had points in my career where I've felt uncomfortable about the way things are presented, perhaps. But if you tell the truth, I think you just get so much goodwill from your people and from your business partners. Um, It's invaluable.
0: What makes a good communicator?
1: I think it's someone who has the ability to paint a big picture, but then the kind of emotional intelligence to pull that down into the real world and real people and real issues.
0: And finally, which communicator, alive or dead, do you most admire?
1: My, um, my, my all-time hero is a lady, um, an American academic and scientist called Donella Meadows, and she was a systems thinker and a farmer, and in 1972 she wrote a book called uh, The Limits to Growth, and it was really one of the first kind of clarion calls and warnings about the way we were living and how it was on a collision course with the natural world and the earth's ability to kind of carry, if you like, um, the sort of carrying capacity, she refers to, of the way we live. And she was really, you know, she was really attacked at the time, this was sort of deep in, in a, an era of, of neoliberal politics and economics. Um, and she was a very brave communicator, very funny and witty communicator, and she's been proven right, you know, in, in sort of oodles. Um, she wrote another book as well called Thinking in Systems. And it's, she sets out, she talks about complex systems and businesses are complex as systems. Politics is a complex system. She talks about how you make change in these complex systems, where the leverage points are. She sort of maps it out. And it's an amazing guidance note, almost, if you work in communications, to think about where are the levers I can pull? I really recommend it. There's a chapter that just summarises it for all comms professionals, how to make change.
0: Uh, It's a great tip to end with and and a very inspiring and original final answer. So thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for your time and your patience today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure.
1: Really nice to chat. Thanks, you. you.
0: Thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more from Delete Delete Engage, including live updates and early access to each podcast episode, why not sign up to the newsletter at deletedeleteengage.substack.com.